Chapter Sixteen of My Actor Husband. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Ashley Jane. My Actor Husband by Anonymous. Chapter Sixteen. In a driving rain under a weeping sky we followed the little white casket to the grave the three of us there in the presence of only the mole-faced grave-diggers and the man of professional black we yielded him up experience had asked with a kind of awe whether she should call in a minister i could have shrieked at the mere suggestion a minister on what pretence to mumble platitudinous euphemisms worn threadbare from usage to essay to comfort me with specious consolation ground out like a gramophone be brave my child he has gone to a better world or the lord giveth and the lord taketh away or again you are not alone in your afflictions other mothers have suffered their dear ones to be removed, etc., etc. Words, words, words. As they lowered him in the grave, his father held me close, and in a voice tremulous with tears, he quoted reverently, And from his fair and unpolluted flesh may violets spring. And when the earth thud harshly against the coffin lid, closing him away for ever, never again to hold him in my arms, never again to feel his cheek on mine. O oh, death, your sting lies buried in the hearts of those who stay behind. And then to leave him there, alone, in the heavy silence of the dead, so cold, all unresisting, his roguish laughter hushed, his lips once red, now blue and drawn, the wax-like lids shadowed with heavy fringe. My boy, my boy, whose coming we had deplored, whose little life had so entwined itself about my heart as made a part of me, the better part, well, he had not tarried long. Boy, boy in the overwhelming grief which had come to me life appeared a void a vacuous heavy-footed thing with moments of suspended thought a merciful numbness of despair a sound a familiar sight a rush of memory a freshet of tears each overlapped the other so fast they followed one of the unpardonable and most resented slights to those in affliction in the even tenor with which the world wags on its way, callous and indifferent. One would have it stop, take heed, upheave. So when Will announced that it were expedient to rejoin his company almost immediately, I felt a sacrilege was about to be committed. His role was being played by an understudy who, after the manner of understudies, was neither prepared nor equal 
to the emergency which had suddenly confronted him. Will urged me to accompany him, pointing out that to remain in the apartment alone, with ever-present reminders of my loss, were to nurse my grief and keep the wound always fresh. Unnumbered cords, frail strands fall fraught with pain, that join the soul to things of time and sense. The thought of leaving all that held the nearness of his spirit was repugnant to me. I wanted to be alone with my grief. Gradually I came to realise that it was for the best. Experience, too, simple, honest soul, was shaken by the suddenness and swiftness of our loss. I decided to send her to her home for a rest and change of scene. After all, what did it matter where I went? Boy was not there. The season dragged by, drab and comfortless. Will's devotion to me was the only ray of light in the murkiness of my spirit. Our common grief had bridged the gulf between us. All the gentleness, the tenderness in his nature seemed to revive. He never left me to accept invitations in which he knew I could not share. Something like the old camaraderie was restored between us. I found a kind of balm in the thought that, if the death of my son had been the means of bringing my husband and me closer together, the sacrifice had not been in vain. And yet, and yet, in the inner consciousness of my heart, I knew the truth. Had I been called upon to choose, the sacrifice had not been boy. Truly, life is a continuous compromise. The season ended, we returned to New York. Because we could not afford to move, there being the usual deficit in the family budget, we opened the apartment. To dwell upon the resurging pain which the reminders in my home undamned were to make fetish of my grief. Neither did I ask experience to return. She, too, belonged to the past of things. Will had determined to leave his present management and seek new fields. The company for the next season was to be curtailed and the cast cheapened, an extended tour of one-night stands. The summer was passed in New York, and luckily, except for periodic waves of tropical heat, the weather was not unendurable. Will spent a goodly part of his time at the Lambs Club, where he said he kept in touch with the activities of the managerial world. The season promised to be backward. Plans appeared to be slow of consummation. The tedium began to tell on Will's nerves and his temper, especially when he found himself suspended from the lambs for non-payment of dues. None of his colleagues came to his rescue. That the theatrical profession is a fraternal organisation is another of those popular fallacies. There can be no spirit of fraternity in an overcrowded profession. It had become expedient that Will appeal to his father for financial assistance. 
a resort which he postponed as long as possible, since the old gentleman invariably accompanied his grudging remittances with advice, censure, and no little contumely. Will could not understand why he was not snapped up at once, so he expressed it. He had made good in his last engagement, had kept himself well advertised, vida the press agent, and it would appear that, as natural sequence, his services should be in demand. He commented on the statement made by several managers, viz. they had nothing in his line. It was evident that in making a pronounced success in a certain genre of plays, he had become identified with the one type of hero, and the managers could see him in no other. Managers are, with rare exceptions, an unimaginative lot. In no other way can one explain the deluge of plays patterned on the same type. For example, let a manager by hit or miss produce successfully a play built around the far west. Immediately there spring up a dozen of the ilk. Or again, let a play of farcical construction score a hit. The public is immediately surfeited with a run of farces. So with the actor. Let him once become identified with heroes of romantic drama and the manager fears to entrust him with the dress-suit role and vice versa. More and more I was impressed with the ephemeral quality of the actor's success. At best the actor's is an aleatory profession and, as in all games of chance, the losses score highest. It was well along in the autumn when Will signed and immediately began rehearsals. The star was a petulant little lady who, by grace of her marriage with a manager, had been hoisted to her present position, a position to which she was not equal either by training, personality or talent. For several seasons the husband manager had invested, and lost, large sums of money in the attempt to build up a following for his wife. The present venture was a kind of last straw. That there was more or less feeling between the couple was evinced by their frequent passage d'armes of a personal nature at rehearsals. Accustomed as he was to the thoroughness of the stage management under which he had worked during the past two seasons, Will found the hit-and-miss methods of his new affiliation disconcerting and irritating. In addition to this, the husband-manager-director had a picturesque if not illiterate command of the language. He was in the habit of standing in the centre aisle or at the back of the theatre and shouting his directions to the members on the stage. When, as sometimes happened, a member resented the manager's method of criticism in no uncertain terms, the personage would back down and with tearful, if blasphemous, appeal explain himself. On opening nights, in response to the persistent calls from the clack, the manager reluctantly appeared before the curtain to bow his acknowledgement, in shirt-sleeves, his air of exhaustion, 
contrasting sharply with his jaws which worked a piece of chewing gum like a ticket chopper in rush hours it would seem that the vanity of actors is not an exclusive attribute the metropolitan reception of the play and star was not one of unmitigated joy the husband manager not liking the opinions of the press talked back both in print and from the stage two ghastly weeks in new york playing to a papered house or empty seats and the company took to the coal regions another fortnight was spent sparring for open time reluctantly doled out to the week and the company gave up the ghost obviously will had entered upon a cycle of bad luck i took upon myself to look for an engagement not only on account of the material consideration but because the emptiness and loneliness of my life had become no longer endurable self-imposed tasks pulled my mind refused to concentrate upon the line of study i had outlined and thus the native view of resolution is sickled o'er with the pale cast of thought the career i once planned for myself had been consigned to the dump heap of lost illusions i could not touch the clay which once had thrilled me with ambition will went about with me on my visits to various managers he encouraged me in my intention and i was glad to interest him to take him out of himself as it were his run of hard luck had preyed on his nerves and frayed his temper there was reason for me to suspect he was drinking more than was good for him finally there came an offer of a small part in a musical comedy which had settled down for a run in new york the fact that i was possessed of no great amount of vocal equipment did not preclude me from the field the manager intimated that what i lacked in voice i made up in pulchritude though i recall he referred to it as shape the salary was to be thirty-five dollars a week the gowns were furnished those worn by my predecessor though i was called upon to supply my own shoes silk hose and gloves in reality i was to be nothing more than a showgirl with a few lines to speak will was in front the night i made my debut after the performance we went to a restaurant there to talk it over congratulating me on my getting away with it and telling me how peachy i looked he laughingly predicted a line of johnnies at the stage door flowers and the usual perquisites of the chorus girl if you weren't wise to the game i'd give you a few pointers he said but and here he reached across the table and patted me on the hands i reckon you're equal to any situation old pard just sit tight until i again land on my feet and then you can cut it out if you like i did not find myself subjected to any fierce onslaughts on the part of the johnnies or vivars about town once or twice i received a note accompanied with flowers the former i destroyed the latter i promptly presented to the least pretty of my five dressing-room mates 
She wore them on the stage and made eyes at the donor, who occupied an upper box, much to my amusement and to his confusion. I discouraged intimacies of all kinds with one exception, but of this more hereafter. The stage director never attempted to chuck me under the chin or call me baby as he did other members of the cast. I had had my little run-in with him at rehearsal when he essayed to yell at me after the manner of his kind. I stopped short, the orchestra petered out in discord, and walking to the apron of the stage, I modulated my voice so that it reached him quietly but effectively, where he stood in the back of the theatre. Mr. M., I had said. If you have any further suggestion to offer, you will please do so in a less offensive manner. My hearing is good, and I believe I have the average amount of intelligence. There was an ominous silence, and the martinet started down the aisle. Behind me I heard a buzz of approbation from the girls who had suffered at his hands. Just why the bully changed his mind I never knew. At any rate, the rehearsal was continued. Later, the manager chafed me about the incident. The manager was an undeveloped little person, as if some hereditary blight had nipped him in the bud, distinctly Semitic in all his traits. Will had known him from the time he had abandoned haberdashery for theatrical management. Indeed, I believe he had been a member of the manager's first venture into the field. One feature which stands out most prominently in retrospect was my adaptability to my surroundings. Conditions which once had shocked me no longer left an impression. Obviously the finer edge of my nature had worn blunt. Things appeared to me in a kind of impersonal light. My present path had been chosen from necessity. A part of the scheme of things, yet a thing apart. The commonplace round of concerns and duties went on, but life, real life, for the time being, lay fallow. Occasionally, when I caught myself dropping into the slang and jargon I had absorbed from my fellow workers, I mused a bit and pulled myself up with a sharp curb. But as I have said, I was no longer disturbed or impressed with conditions which once had sent the blood to my cheeks. The easy familiarity between the sexes which I had thought sufficiently deplorable in the legitimate branch of the theatrical profession was in the comic opera world flagrantly increased. I have heard a distinction made between immorality and unmorality, but I failed to observe any slight deviation from the general result. Vulgar stories, steeped in smut, went the rounds. Each new one was welcomed and passed down the line. If one betrayed her disapproval by ignoring the rancontur, she was laughed down and thereafter referred to as very upstage. In the dressing rooms, modesty of person was an unknown quantity. Not infrequently, I found extra gentlemen performing ladies' maid service for one of the girls. On one occasion, when I slipped on the iron stairway leading to the stage, badly wrenching my ankle, a sturdy stagehand picked me up, 
carried me to my dressing-room, and, before I realised what he was about, had pulled off my shoe, and was in way of removing my stocking, when I protested. "'Oh, well, if you're that fussy,' he said as he went out. One of the most pernicious influences to be contended against by the girl who tries to go straight is the never-ceasing topic of men and money. The man behind the bankroll is the basis, in one form or another, of all the chorus girl conversations. To be picked out by a man of means to marry, or failing this, to be set up in a swell apartment and put it all over the girls of her acquaintance, is the hope which springs eternal in the chorus girl breast. Even in hard times, when the champagne appetite needs must be quenched with beer, she dreams of diamonds. Standing in the wings, waiting for the queue, one hears an exchange of banter such as this. Heard you were at the Abbey last night. Where'd you pick him up? Say, don't you believe anything he tells you? Henny knows all about him, and he says that for a tight wad he's got Russell Sage skinned to death. Or, I was at Morris Hymer's today. They're having a sale of models. I got a three-piece velvet suit for thirty-five dollars, marked down from seventy. Say, he must be good to you. Why don't you introduce me to some of your gentlemen friends? I once asked a chorus girl of considerable notoriety how she had come to enter the profession. Oh, she replied. My folks was the poor but respectable kind. There was a big family of us, and I, being the oldest, had to help out. I didn't get much schooling, and after trying half a dozen things like being a chambermaid, waiting in a restaurant and that kind of business, I tumbled to the fact that I wasn't bad-looking. That's all I had, my face and my shape, and the stage was the best place to show them. My dressing room mates were typical showgirls, manière, self-conscious, and always on parade. It was painfully evident they felt themselves above the chorus, though some of them were pleased to forget the fact that they were but recently graduated from that class. One of these girls afterward married an English baronet. I have since wondered what disposition was made of the baronet's mother-in-law. I made her acquaintance in the dressing-room one evening, whither she had come to mend her daughter's wardrobe. She was a splendid specimen of the complacent stage mamma. Clad in rusty black, her portly figure bulging from ill-fitting stays, one might mistake her for the type of scrub-woman one sees about the large office buildings of early mornings. But never, never would one suspect her of being the mother of this near ver de ver, voluble to a point of madness. She would acquaint you with the family history, the cause and intimate details of her husband's untimely taking off, and the great hope she entertained for her daughter's getting on. Sometimes she brought with her the youngest of her offspring, a little girl of six, who had already made her debut as a child actress. Like all children of the stage, she was precocious and most unchildlike. 
in the enactment of laws which are aimed to protect the child labourer an attempt is being made to bring about an exemption of their application to the stage child that the child actor receives better pay that he or she works less hours and under more sanitary surroundings than do children in other trades and professions cannot be gainsaid but is the economic welfare of the child the prime and only consideration is the physical protection the one and uppermost consummation to be desired what of the spiritual the moral side of the stage child if environment bear the strong influence of human life we are led to believe then should the stage child be removed from its infectious surroundings the old saw to the effect of pitch and defilement is here most applicable i have referred elsewhere to the exception i made in my discouragement of intimacies on that morning at rehearsal when i had resented the stage director's mode of criticism among others who had approved my act was a girl whose face had at once attracted me she was pretty and of less common type than the chorus averages there was something individual about her her appearance was neat and i had observed that her clothes were neither so new nor so extreme as were those of her colleagues also i was impressed with a quiet refinement of manner and her usage of good english as we became better acquainted she sometimes waited for me after the performance and we walked together to the underground station where our lines diverged later i had asked her to dine with me on a sunday when will was away on a weekend motor trip she appeared to enjoy the home atmosphere and visited with me in the kitchen while i was preparing dinner feeling that with our reduced income we could not afford it i had dispensed with a servant and as will rarely if ever dined at home my housekeeping duties were not onerous this is what i have always longed for a little home all my own layla had remarked smiling wistfully it was after dinner and we had settled ourselves for a chat then in the name of common sense dear girl why did you go to the stage home life and a stage career are as antipodal as the poles and yet you managed to blend the two rather charmingly she retorted absurd i am not trying for a career and as for home life my dear child it's the merest pretense half the time we are not at home and the flat has either to be let or remain closed one never knows from day to day when the furniture will be packed off to storage yes i presume you are right how did i come to go on the stage well i suppose it was because i wanted a career of some kind i wanted to do something you know how empty and shallow the average girl's life is with the endless round of parties visits fancy work and that sort of thing i was an only daughter too father was well to do and wrapped up in the affairs of the small city in which we lived after he died mother thought she would like to travel we went abroad it was over there that the idea of a career took a stronger hold on me about the only talent i could lay any claim to was music 
I had always played and sung at our home concerts and church sociables, but Mother didn't encourage me in my ambitions. She argued that, since Father had left us comfortably fixed, why should I want to worry my head about work? Besides, she said my first duty was to her as long as she lived. So there it rested. We just drifted from place to place, vegetating. Some parents are like that, I commented. Layla rested her chin in her palms and went on. After mother died, I resolved to go after that career. I returned abroad to study. She chuckled a little, probably at the remembrance. Of course, the teachers said I had a great future ahead of me, with application and patience, infinite patience. Meanwhile, I must study and pay exorbitant prices for my tuition. The income which had been ample for my needs heretofore did not go very far under the new regime. I found it necessary to cut into the capital, realising the danger of such a move, but soothing my fears with the dream of my great future. Well, honey, the splendid career, as you see, has ended in the chorus. And what's more, I'm living on my salary. She picked up Will's guitar and began strumming it. What I can't understand, she continued after a while. What I feel most is the fact that I don't seem able to pull myself out of it. I see other girls lifting themselves to better positions. I know I can sing better than any one of them. There was Miss Nelson whom you succeeded. As soon as I heard she was to retire, I went to the manager and asked for her place. He sent me to the musical director, who heard me sing, commented favourably, and said he would report to the manager. That was the last I heard of it until rehearsal was called, and I learned that you had been engaged. Tell me, honestly, what's the matter with me? Why don't I get on? Is it because I haven't any pull, or because... She did not finish her sentence, but switched to another. Take our prima donna, for example. Three years ago she was playing a part not bigger than yours. Now look at her. My voice is as good as hers, if not better, but I can't get them to let me even understudy her. A vision of the prima donna passed before my eyes. An insipidly pretty woman whose sudden rise to fame had turned her empty little head. Vain, impetuous, over-keyed, already the marks of dissipation were leaving their indelible stamp. Whenever I saw her, resplendent in sables, dangling her jewelled gold-mesh purse, my mind reverted to a well-known clubman's comment on virtue. I always measured the chastity of the unprotected female by the size of her gold-mesh bag. The larger the bag, the less the virtue. Layla, bent on relieving her mind and heart, went on. When I went into the chorus, it was a choice between that and Macy's. Of course I'd heard things about the life, but I told myself that a girl who wants to can go straight in any walk of life. I had all those copybook maxims at the tip of my tongue. Virtue is its own reward, and 
then let us be up and doing with a heart for any fate still achieving still pursuing learn to labour and to wait or something like that willie stuart you know the little black-eyed girl who plays next to me on the left it was she who gave me my first eye-opener seeing that i was new at the business she came to me shortly after we opened and asked me if i didn't want to meet some gentleman that she had been asked to bring some of the girls with her to a beefsteak party which was to be pulled off that night i thanked her and told her i did not care to go willie squinted her eyes a little in sizing me up then treated me to the following advice look here angel child you'd better go back to home and mother this is no place for a minister's daughter if you haven't got sense enough to take a chance when it's brought to you on a silver tray well all i've got to say is that you're in wrong managers want the girls that are popular and the way to be popular is to mingle just remember that you don't get anything for nothing in this business or in no other as far as i've been able to observe it's give up give up all along the line and it's only the foxy dame that gets what's coming to her even then willie has a very large gold bag i have noticed i said and a sealskin coat layla added then she jumped to her feet and struck at the sofa pillows viciously it isn't the clothes and that sort of thing that appeals to me it isn't the fact that i'm living in a dingy little room and trying to make ends meet i'd live on a box of unida biscuits a day if i saw any hope the faintest ray of hope that i could win out clean on merit alone in the end sometimes i think i'm wrong and that they are right layla you don't think anything of the sort you know you are right hold on a little while longer you're sure to win why with a voice like yours and your beauty i should feel so sure of winning that nothing else would matter and it doesn't layla nothing else really counts if you live up to the best that's in you i had worked myself up to a state of enthusiasm where i almost believed my own words i took her by the shoulders and held her at arm's length we looked into each other's eyes each trying to pierce the veil behind which are concealed our true thoughts. It was nearing the holidays when Will signed for the engagement which was destined to play such an important role in our future lives. The star was of foreign origin, with a fascinating accent and a steadily increasing reputation for eroticism. Under the guise of highbrow drama, she revelled in the portrayal of abnormal femininity her adeptness in suggestive scenes to which she lent a startling verisimilitude soon gained for her a large if not altogether intellectual following will was not altogether satisfied with his role but what actor ever is i consoled him with the fact that the salary was good and that but little of the present season remained with will on the road left to myself in the empty apartment the blue devils renewed their lease and when the approach of the christmas season began to manifest itself in shop windows and in holiday rush my heartache increased manifold layla and i were much together in those days 
my little friend's increasing depression, instead of augmenting my own, acted as a spur to brighter moods. Together we made the round of the shops, or tramped through the snow in Central Park. Sometimes we lingered to watch the young people skating on the ice. Again we hitched ourselves to sleds, to the merriment of small folk. Coming home alone from a matinee, I would find myself following a party of children out on an anti-holiday survey. Standing close to them, I listened to their prattle and eager expectancy of a visit from Santa Claus. If the tears came, I swallowed hard. No one was near to heed. In the seclusion of my home, I fought it out alone. It had been my intention to carry a box of flowers to the dear one's grave on Christmas morning. Passing one day through a wretched quarter of the east side in search of a dilatory laundress, my steps halted in front of a cheap toy shop. Beside me stood a small boy, clinging to the hand of an older girl, their eyes riveted upon the display within. With one grimy little hand, stiff and rough from the cold, the small man smeared the tears from his eyes and sniffled. His threadbare coat, sizes too large for his meagre frame, his toes showing through his shoes. The girl's face was peaked and old, as if the despair of life had already left its stamp. There was something infinitely tender in the way she held the boy close to her mutely comforting his grief, her eyes meeting half-defiantly the tinseled magnet of the shop window, her lips compressed to stop their mutinous tremble. When I at last brought myself to break in upon their thoughts, they looked at me like startled fawns. The overture was on when I rushed into the theatre that afternoon. With Layla's help I was in time for my cue, and it was with Layla's help that I dressed the toys and trimmed the tree, and between us, late on Christmas Eve, we toted a big basket on and off the cars, up the dingy stairs, where Maggie kept house for me brother, while their mother went out to work. It was boy's offering, not mine. End of chapter 16 Recording by Ashley Jane